The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Father, we, we're, we're gathering here this morning not because it's a family tradition, not because it's just a cultural tradition, it's just what you do on Easter. We're here because this is the one event that has changed human history. Um, this is the, we celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. He didn't just come back to life. He received a totally new life, never to die again. He, as it's been said over and over today, he defeated death. And no matter where we are in our life, all of us, if we, de- if we could really answer that question or ask ourselves that question, we all want to defeat death. We all want to have a meaningful life to go on into eternity. And I pray this morning you'd help me to communicate that clearly. I'm a sinful man. And uh, I need your grace this morning. So would you think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords? Would your word not return void? Would you open our ears and keep distractions at bay and allow us to see your glory, allow us to hear your good news? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm just going to let you know right away, this is not going to be your typical Easter sermon. In fact, this is part two of a sermon that began last week. Uh, If you're interested, you can find the podcast on iTunes and our website. Many, some said that it was my best sermon I ever preached last week, which is a bummer. I peaked one one week too early. (laughs) So I'm sorry about that, but last week's probably a lot better. Uh, But the reason this sermon is not going to be your typical Easter sermon is because most of the churches in our country and in our city have actually lost the core message of Christianity. They have Christian church on the door, but the message coming from the pulpit is not Christianity. It's not the core message of Christianity. Nine out of 10 churches in our city have stagnated or are declining. A recent Barna poll ranked the Quad Cities the 27th least churched city in the United States. So many of us have probably gotten used to an Easter sermon that's almost Christian, but not quite. Now I know that sounds a little shocking, but let me lay out two typical Easter sermons really quick. Number one, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, be a good person. The core message of this sermon is the idea that Christ came to make us nice, make us nice, moral, upstanding citizens. So be nice. And as we saw last week, and I'll briefly show you again today, this is actually called moralism. And it is not Christianity. Jesus came to make us new, not nice. Secondly, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you, so you don't have to go to hell. The core message of this sermon is the idea that Christ came to get us into heaven when we die. So pray a prayer in Jesus' name, and that's that. You've got that taken care of. This sermon is really popular on Easter because so many of you have came for the first or second time all year. And pastors think they really need to give you the hard sell to save your soul. Now, this sermon is closer to the mark than the first one is. 
It's actually true in one sense. All of us, all human beings need saving. We're born into sin. This is why we don't teach our kids to disobey, right? Like your kids are in the nursery, right? When they hit another child, we're not thinking, all right, they're practicing that at home. Mom's teaching them, take the toy and whack the child with it, right? We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't interpret your child's behavior through your parenting until they're teenagers, okay? Just, just gonna say that, right? What's going on, see, is we all need saving. We're born sinners and we need to be redeemed through Jesus Christ. So the good news of Christianity isn't just about our afterlife, what's going to happen when we die. The good news of Christianity is that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I can know God and know myself in a totally new way that can begin today and go on for eternity. That I can know God, the meaning of life, the reason for existence, the reason you're on this planet is because God created a world for you to enjoy so that you could enjoy the world and worship him and know him. That's the meaning of life, to know God. And then in light of that, to be able to see yourself in a new way. And the reason I think you might want to give me your ear this morning is because knowing God and knowing ourself are really two keys to long-term happiness and satisfaction in this life. Let me briefly build that out for you by looking at this section of scripture found in the book of Ephesians. We're gonna be in chapter four, uh, verses 17, and we're gonna go into five, chapter five, verse two. So you can, there's Bibles in the pews in front, or the chairs in front of you. Hopefully you got a Bible, you got an app, pull it up. Now from this passage, we're going to learn three things that will help you come to know God and know yourself in a way that can transform your life as you know it. First, we, we have new identities by grace. Second, we grow in these new identities by having our imaginations constantly renewed by Jesus. And lastly, if we're ever going to grow up into this new self, we need a new community of grace to practice our new life in. The first two I talked about last week, so I'm just gonna briefly skim over them and summarize Paul's thoughts here. Now, Paul is speaking to people of the Greco-Roman world who had recently became Christians about 2,000 years ago. And he tells them, though you are Gentiles, you're a member of the Greco-Roman wor world, you can no longer live as Gentiles do. So the culture is going one way, you have to change directions. You have to be a different type of person. He's really warning them of the herd mentality that we all have, even if we're not aware of it. Living in a culture shapes the way you see the world. Our American culture has deeply shaped us, even if we're unaware of its influences. Here's a couple ways, our culture tells us to go out there in the world and find yourself. What, is that, what does that mean, go out there and find yourself? It means go out there and find what you're good at. Go out there and build your self-worth, your identity 
on your achievements. And so we're kind of bumbling around and we're trying to figure things out. And okay, am I good at sports? Well, if, okay, sports, I'm good at that. I'm gonna pour my life into sports and I'm gonna let sports define my life. Or music, or people, or what are all the, whatever it is out there, that's what we do. And so when somebody says, you know, what do you do? We answer with, well, I'm a lawyer. We asked you what you did. You told me who you are. See, this interesting thing is in this idea of go out there and build an identity, you become what you do. I am fill in the blank. But what's interesting is if you look at our culture, things have begun to shift in a significant way. And now there's a, a large stream flowing in our culture that is moving in a divergent direction. And many today, the younger generation especially, are rejecting this mode of finding identity. It's not out there in what I do. Instead, they've begun to look inside for their identity. They're looking deep inside. Some call it navel gazing, right? In this view, my true self is found somewhere deep at the core of my personhood. But again, my chief aim is to find myself. So people are cashing in the corporate paycheck and the corporate pension, and they're buying a van, and they're living out in the woods and YouTubing it, right? And they're out there finding their self by going in deep inside. And the whole core message of this is you can only be happy if you find the true you deep inside. And the Apostle Paul here, writing over 2,000 years ago, rejects both of these approaches. They're nothing new. He rejects them because they're deeply flawed and they don't understand our personhood. He's Paul's saying, if you find your identity out there, it's an exhausting process. It's a competitive process. You try to be the best, but in reality, you know you're never the best. You can win the Olympic gold, and there's a 12-year-old who's going to beat you in four years. It's an exhausting process. And it's deeply individual. It's all about you. It's really not the, about the good of the world. It's also, it also makes people, if you're out there trying to find your identity, it makes people terribly insecure because it's always based on how well you're doing in comparison to others. So you're always kind of skeptical about other people and you're always nervous that they might get a piece of your pie. They might become better than you. They might take from you in some way. But the new way, it's interesting, the new way is just as flawed. In this new approach, approach, your identity is so fluid that you never really come to know yourself. You're just in a constant search that seems to change shape every few years. Yourself is, some, is like a wisp of smoke that you try to capture and it just goes through your fingers. This identity can never really come to grips with the reality that my inner self might be unhealthy. It might be bent. It might be, in the words of Scripture, deeply sinful and therefore not a good foundation to build any identity upon. Both of those ways of finding an identity are what call, Paul calls the old self. 
It's what everybody's doing. It's how everybody is trying to make meaning out of their life if they don't worship the one true God that can infuse their life with true meaning. It's a way of life that is uncritical of the cultural forces that are trying to shape us as people. So what does Paul tell us to do? He tells them to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Now, first off, where do we get this new self? This is overview last week. We get the new self from Jesus. Verse 20 shows us that. This is how you learn Christ. Christ came to give us a new life. Now, this is interesting. The new self, Paul says, is created in the likeness of God. And that means this word life is zoe in the Greek. And it means an abundant life, an overflowing life, a vibrant life, a true life, a life that we're all looking for. And Paul tells us that this true life is found in Christ and it's made, this new self is made in the likeness of true righteousness and holiness. Okay, that's what Paul says there. And here's the key. This new identity that's made in the image of God, that has real life, true, your true self, it's not achieved, it's not found, it's received by grace. That God has prepared it for you. That Christ has purchased it for you. Christ has earned it for you. And Christ will give it to you. Now this is a definitive moment in a person's life. Now, what, when do you put off the old self and put on the new self? When you hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what I'm going to be describing for you this morning, and you turn from your old way of finding your identity, and instead you find your identity in Christ, that he is where you find your meaning and your purpose and your reason for existing. And when you do that, the son of the living God deposits in you a new self, literally a new self. I went into a lot more details last week, but this only happens once. It's not something you continually do. Put off the old self, put on the new. No, no, you do it once. We turn from our self-made identity projects and turn instead to God through Jesus Christ and we receive a totally new self by grace. But what, is, but what Paul goes on to show us is that when we receive the new self in a, def, in a definitive moment in time, listen, this is, this is important. It's received as an acorn self. Okay, now that's good news in a couple of reasons. I showed last week. One, that all the power of organic growth is present in that acorn. That acorn can outgrow a house, Right? house you construct, you build your identity, it's set, it needs constant work. But if you have an acorn self, that thing can grow on forever. So you can come to know more about yourself, come to know about who God is, all the way into eternity. There's power in that acorn self. But the reality also is that when we receive the new self God gives us, it, we don't receive it in a mature way. This new self has to grow. It has to expand. It has to become all that it's meant to be. Paul says we do this by having our imaginations renewed in the spirit of our minds. Kind of a cryptic phrase. 
But what's he talking about is the more you are around Jesus, the more you learn of Jesus, Jesus begins to capture your imagination. He begins to grab you by the gut. And now you don't need a list of behaviors to tell you what to do. You can almost feel what's right because Jesus, you've been around Jesus so much. It's like a reflex now. Now what this shows us is back in my day, we, we used to have WWJD bracelets. <laughs> and this was kind of the core of the church's message at that time. This is what you need to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And this idea is that Jesus is a moral exemplar. He's our great example that we need to obey and we need to follow. But what this actually does is it leads to moralism. If you're good at it, you begin to follow the rules and look down on those who aren't man enough or woman enough to wear the bracelet. Oh, you're one of those Christians, huh? Can't wear the bracelet for Jesus. Okay, right? You start thinking, what would Jesus do? And you start making wise decisions. And this is what interestingly happens. You begin to look down your nose at those who aren't as moral as you are. See, this is not Christianity. This is moralism. It's a totally different religion. Christianity does not ask first, what would Jesus do? Christianity asks, what has Jesus done? When a person is captivated, they're at a gut level, at a heart level, their imagination is captivated by what Jesus has done for them in the gospel, they will be motivated to do what they should do. And Paul is making sure we see this. Verses 25 and 32 are going to tell us a lot of things that Christians need to do. A lot of things that we need to change if we're going to put on the new self and live out of the new self in a new community. But don't miss the forest for the trees here. Verses 25 through 32 come after verses 17 through 24. In 17 20 through 24, God gives us our new self in Christ before our behavior changes. Our new identity precedes our new behavior. And listen, this is what makes Christianity unique and distinct among every other religion. During a British conference on comparative religions, Experts from around the world were debating what, if anything, uh, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Is it the incarnation? No, other religions have uh, different versions of God's appearing in human form. Is it the resurrection? Actually, no, other religions had different versions or accounts of men coming back from the death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. He says, what's the rumpus about? <laughs> and he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. And he says, from his gut, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And they talked about it and they discussed it for a few more hours and they said, you know what? He's absolutely right. Now listen, it's interesting though. Jesus or grace isn't what we think it is. Many times we think grace is a second chance. Grace is not a second chance. If grace was a second chance, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. 
Did you blow your second chance? Because I blew it on probably day two of existence, right? Grace is not a second chance. This is grace. Jesus looks down on humanity, makes a covenant with the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They always work together in unison and they made a covenant together that they were going to save humanity even though humanity has rebelled against God. And their plan was not, let's build a golden staircase and let them morally achieve heaven. Let them get better and better and better. And if, they, if the people are good enough, they'll earn their way to heaven. That's exactly not what happened. If there was any staircase at all, there was a ladder, actually, Jacob's ladder. But Jesus climbed down it, climbed down it. And so Jesus, the perfect son of God, who's never sinned, who's only enjoyed heaven and perfect communion with God, he says, I will go willingly. And listen, here's the deal. He comes as our new covenant head, our new representative. In Adam, we're all dead. We've all sinned. In Christ, we can all be made alive. And this is what Jesus does. I'm going to come and be what they can't be. I'm going to be the perfect man. I'm going to obey God perfectly. I'm never going to sin. I'm never going to push away. And then instead of receiving the reward that a perfect man should, be, should receive, glory, honor, praise, he should have a kingdom, we should all worship him. Instead, I'm going to let human beings kill me in a gruesome and horrific way. And what I'm doing is I'm exchanging places with human beings. I'm living the life that they should live and I'm dying the death that they deserve because of their rebellion from God. That when we push away from God, we deserve sin and we deserve hell and we deserve death because we're pushing away from life itself. We're saying, I don't trust you. I trust me and I want to find life and identity and meaning on my own. Well, that's foolishness and it deserves death. Well, Christ, he didn't accidentally get himself crucified. He came to do it on purpose so that at his resurrection, by faith, we could receive his identity, his righteousness, his holiness. So he takes our sinfulness, we take his perfect right standing. The report card of a perfect life that Christ lived gets counted to us, credited to us. So now my new identity is created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness. I can receive this without doing anything to deserve it. Now, every other world religion, your performance precedes uh, the verdict, okay? How well can you do? Okay, you're good. You'll make it to heaven. You'll make it to nirvana. You'll get blessings in this life. In Christianity, the verdict precedes the performance. You're new in Christ. Now live like it. Not be good enough to, to deserve this. You'll never be good enough to deserve this. Christ earned it for you. Receive it and now live out of it. Completely different religion. No other religion, and I've studied all or most of them, they don't, nobody else has this. And this has got life-changing potential if you come to understand it. Okay. That was last week. <laughs> Here's the key. We receive this new identity. It comes in as an acorn. It's got to grow up. But how do you grow up? Well, what's Paul, what Paul's going to show us, verse 25, says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you 
speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay, here's what Paul is going to show us. You grow up into this new self by practicing in a new community full of people who have also been made new by God, also known as the church. Think about it. How have you become you? I'll tell you what, you grew up in some kind of family. It could have been a happy and healthy family, or it could have been a hurtful and broken family. Actually, most of them are a mixture of the two. But it was in that family that you learned how to be you. You learned how to be you. You learned how to relate to God. You learned how to relate to other people. Scientists are telling us that within the first few moments of an infant's life, they're looking in the face of their mother and their father and they're learning how to mimic their facial expressions. And when mom's eyes go up and she smiles, baby says, I did something good. Keep doing that, right? And when they lose their mind and everybody else loses their mind and snaps to it, they're like, oh, that worked. Like if I ever need attention, I just do that, right? If I want to run the household, I just scream a lot, right? They're learning how to be them. Now, it's interesting. This is how we've learned to be us, how, to learn, how we learn to communicate. Usually, if you're a yeller, you grow up in a home full of yellers. If you're a retreater, you grew up in a home with retreaters. That in our home, in our family of origin, we learn what to do when we're angry. We, that's why if you ever talk to somebody that like throws stuff when they're angry, to them they're like, people, other people don't do that? They're like, you're a psycho, bro. <laughs> no. We, we, that's not normal to throw things when you're angry. You pay good money for that, for one, right? No, but if you grew up in that home where just things got violent, just mom and dad are scuffling and the kids are scuffling, that seems normal to you. You learn in this environment how to spend money. What is money for? Is it for hiding and piling up? Or is it for Whitey's ice cream every night of the week? You learn how to treat people. You learn how to treat people who aren't like you. You learn who's in and who's out. We're not like those people. Who you are today has a lot to do with your family of origin. But this is interesting. And I said that like 10 times today because it's interesting to me. <laughs> Here Paul is saying you've been adopted into a new family. Chapter five, verse one says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And it's in this new family where you are meant to learn how to live out of your new self. This new identity that's been given to you in Christ. You're, learn you're to learn how to communicate in a new way how to respond to people in a new way. Paul's saying you are never going to become all that God has created you to become unless you have this new community, a very specific type of community that is controlled, we'll see, by grace. 
so that you can really try it on and learn to practice it out. That's why Paul says you need, in verse 25, to be with members of the church, members of one another. You need to be in the church so that you can be reformed in a new community shaped after Christ and your new self. Now, I need you to hear this. The church is not full of nice people. It never has been. The Apostle Paul was not a nice guy. He was killing Christians before he converted to Christianity. He wasn't a nice guy. The church is a place full of broken and sinful people who have been made new. And these broken and sinful people are learning how to live out their new identities that they've been given by God. That's what we're trying to do. Live out our new self and do it together in a way and we encourage one another and we keep walking towards one another. So in 10 years from now, we're more mature and look more like Christ in some of these behaviors we're gonna see than we are right now. And here's the deal. If you're not a part of community, you're not guaranteed that. I know many people who claim to be Christian and, and they're some of the meanest people on the planet. They claim to be Christian and then yell at my kids to get off my lawn. All right, I'm like, why don't you come out on your lawn, right? Um, sorry. Right. What is that? What's going on there, right? We've walked away for something. We've forgotten something. The key to what makes this thing unique, this community unique. And so Paul here, because of these people are sinful, look, can you imagine like to the church, he's saying to the church, the first thing he's going to say is put away falsehood, like stop lying. Now he's talking to a church. Most of us think, well, church people, they're pretty good people. If the first thing you got to tell them is, hey, stop lying. Would you stop lying? That's like lesson one, right? But this is the reality. The church is full of broken people. And they need to be reminded of who they are in Christ. And so Paul's going to lay out some house rules here. He says, this is how you live as the new family of God. And before we go through these house rules, I want you to know three important things. Number one, you're becoming, an, when you receive Christ, you get this new self and you're maturing in the likeness of Jesus. You're growing in it. So guess what that means? Failure is necessary. It's part of practice. When you go out on the baseball field and you're practicing, the whole point is to mess up. That's, I mean, to get better, but you mess up and your coach goes, whoa, you're dipping your shoulder. Whoa, you didn't throw, do that well. Whoa, you did that wrong. And now in a non-competitive environment, your coach has some different eyes and he can look on you and say, okay, we need to change that. We need to tweak that. When we're living together in community, failure is going to happen. It's meant to happen. It has to happen. You're going to say the wrong thing and you're going to need to receive grace. You're going to hurt someone and need to be asked forgiveness for, from God and ask forgiveness for them. You're going to have to forgive others. It's, it's necessary. It's got to happen. Secondly, and this is one of the hardest ones for Christians who get the new self. This also means that we have to be patient with our old self while the new self grows up. I met so many people who come to Christ and they expect to be mature right now, right? Listen, there's a lot in this book, okay? It's gonna take years to learn it. 
okay? No, it's going to take a life. It's going to take multiple lifetimes <laughs> to learn this. You're not just going to, you know, one day, boom, you're mature. And so guess what? Be patient with yourself. We saw Richard Plass uh, a couple weekends ago at our Enneagram seminar on the relational soul. And one of the things that Richard always tells me, he's like, be patient with Justin. He's a good young man. And I'm like, it's funny because I don't really believe that most of the time. I'm pretty aggressive with myself. I beat myself up a lot. I see where I fall short. And in, my, in a sense, I crucify myself, thinking that's somehow holy. But what that is, is a denial of Christ who's lived the perfect life for me and gives it to me by grace. I don't need to crucify myself. He was crucified for me. So be patient with yourself. It takes a while for that old self to be fully put away. Lastly, this whole chapter, just seeing how much time I got. This whole chapter is Paul looking at a group of Christians and basically saying this. Why are you living out of your old self right now? He wants them to be able to diagnose the signs of that old self coming up again so they can repent and turn away from it and trust in the gospel again. So what we're going to do as we go through this list of behaviors, we're going to, I'm going to try to show you how this works practically. One time I was sharing my faith with a, with a guy at my gym. It was not, not here, it was years back. And he, he told me he was having a lot of problems in his relationship. He wasn't married yet. And, uh, you know, she was the problem. <clears throat> this is how it always starts, okay? Uh, the guy comes to me, she's the problem. The girl comes to me, he's the problem. I've learned enough that they're both the problem, all right? They're, they're both sinful. He comes to me and he's saying all this, he has all this problem and she won't do this and she won't do that. And I knew he wasn't a Christian. And so I just said, he said, what do you think I should do? I said, I think, I, I think you should probably humble yourself and repent. He goes, what? I said, you should probably find out what you're doing wrong and you should own it to her and you should confess your sins to her and repent for not being the man that you, that you should be. Number one, you're, you're, you haven't married her you're, and I'm not gonna get into all that, but not, not a great, not a great uh, system that they were living at the moment. And I said, he said, oh, I don't know about this. Well, this is what Jesus showed us. Jesus said, men are called to lay down their lives like Christ laid down his life for his church. And so Christ humbled himself and he laid his life down and gave it up so that we could have a new life. And so we do that and we are meant to mirror the gospel to our spouse. And so we give up our rights and we lay down and we're the first to confess of our sins. I'm kind of, okay. Class starts, I have to run off, right? I have no idea how it went. I, in the moment, I have no idea how it went. I come back a few days, days later, he goes, hey, Justin, let me talk. I'm like, oh, crap. He's either going to be like, that was, you're an idiot for saying that. You're, you know, whatever. I have no idea what he's going to say to me. And he goes, hey, man, you're not going to believe it. I'm like, what? He goes, I did it. I'm like, you did what? <laughs> I humbled myself like Christ did the, for the church. And I was like, <laughs> tell me about it. He goes, and it was the best weekend ever. <laughs> and I said, well, praise God, that works. And he looks at me and he goes, do you have like other people you do this with? And I said, like a community? He goes, yeah. I'm like, actually, I do. 
And that's what is meant to be going on right now. That we don't see our own sin, we don't see our own problems, we don't see how we're living out of the old self and we're trying to find an identity in something other. We need somebody to look in at us and share the gospel with us and tell us who we are in Christ. Now the interesting thing, this was like seven, eight years ago, a friend texted me this week and this guy was, was on an internet, a, a, a global podcast this week or, or a, one of his friends was on a global podcast and they were talking about why he wears a wedding ring. And he said, well, this guy once told me, the guy that I talked to, that I become a better man when I put this ring on. And this guy, you know, in the past few years, he, be, he became a Christian, he became a Christ follower. We've been in correspondence. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like he wasn't married before, he, he got married, he accepted Christ, and now he's telling somebody else, the reason I wear a wedding ring and, and I'm not just living with my girlfriend or boyfriend, the reason I get married is because it makes me a better man when I put this ring on. And I was like, that's how it's supposed to work. In community, together, we grow up into the likeness of Jesus. We need each other. We need other people. So let me get into this this morning. This is how we practice helping each other grow up into our new self. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Now, it's interesting. When we're living out of the old self, we're living in falsehood. We're living a lie. Lying is our native tongue. Now, why do we lie? We lie because our false self is insecure. I lie to you because I want you to be impressed by me and think that I'm more successful than I really am. Have you ever surprised yourself by a lie? You said the lie so fast, you walked away. Go, Why did I do that? It's from your old self. You just wanted to impress in the moment. You just wanted them to like you. And so you presented this false self to them. See, that false self tells lies because I need affirmation and I need you to validate me. Paul says we put away that with the old self. What does that mean? That means when I lie, I have to see why am I telling that lie? What am I trying to get from this person? I need to repent and go back to the gospel and believe the gospel. He says, speak the truth. This is the new self because God has already affirmed me. Jesus has given me a constant and permanent new identity by grace. Therefore, I'm already secure. I am already accepted by God through Jesus Christ. He says I'm deeply loved even though I'm deeply flawed. So here it is. Look, that frees me to tell the truth even when it makes me look bad. When you join a missional community, you're going to be surprised by people confessing their sins. You're going to be surprised that they can be honest and open about that. Why? Because their identity isn't in what you think of them anymore. Their identity is in Christ. They've been set free to live out of the new self. They're free to speak some hard things. Sometimes we need to speak truth to one another and we need to point out something that they're not, they might be blind to. And I can do that because I'm not worried about how you're going to respond to me. They're going to be upset with me. I love you so I can say it. 
my identity is in Christ. Let's keep going really quick. Verse 26, he tells them, "Uh uh-oh, be angry and do not sin. Now here's the, in the old self, you got two options. You got, I'm angry all the time and I can't really control it. Okay, you're a hothead. Or you've got, ooh, anger's bad. Don't get angry at anything. And you're a pushover. And the Apostle Paul here says, push away from the old self. Live out of your new self. In the new self, you're to be angry and not sin. See, why do I get angry, either blow up anger or hide from it? Why do I respond that way? Because my identity is so fragile that when myself, my old self is threatened, when someone criticizes my performance, I either lash out at them because I'm afraid and I'm gonna crush them for making me feel weak or I'm gonna hide away hoping they don't say anything mean to me ever again. And either side of these, listen, anger is destructive. This type of blow up anger will ruin every relationship in your life and people will hide from you. This type of anger is quiet bitterness. And it's just, it's just kind of, you let evil take place. You let harmful things happen around you because you can never step into it. Both of these types of anger is destructive. And yet, Paul is telling them, be angry and do not sin. What Paul is prescribing is a new type of anger, a constructive anger. See, when we look to Jesus, Jesus got angry. We know we know all the time where he went into the temple and they were selling things and they had turned what he called a house of prayer into a den of thieves, taxing people, doing all kinds of things. And Jesus made a whip and cleared the temple. Now, his anger was not destructive. His anger was constructive. He was making the house of prayer into what it was meant to be, a house of prayer, by driving out the people that were destroying it. Now, this is how we should get angry. We should get angry at abuse. We should get angry at injustice. We should get angry at the destructive patterns of sin that destroy people's lives and turn our cities into a living hell. And if you don't get angry, you don't love them. But this anger should motivate us to heal, to help, to build organizations within our city that help bring renewal. That's constructive anger. This comes from believing the gospel. I don't have to lash out when somebody criticizes me. I don't have to hide. I can be who I am in Christ because I'm already accepted in Christ. Keep going. I don't have to I'm keep going. 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, why do we steal? We steal when we're living out of our old self. And our old self says, I'm worthless if I don't have that. If I don't have those clothes, if I don't have those shoes, if I don't have that little extra on my taxes. Or it also can manifest the world exists to make me happy and I want to exude the minimum amount of effort to receive the maximum amount of pleasure. 
and stealing can be the shortest route to my pleasure. But it's obviously entirely selfish and doesn't care about others. Now this, when we see this in our life, we need to repent of it and turn and believe the truth about who God has made us to be in our new self. Now we're made in the image of God. God himself is generous in all of creation. All of his work was done to bless us freely. Many of us who find our identity through our work, Jesus flips the entire work hard and enjoy your fruits mentality on its head. Jesus worked hard so that we could enjoy the fruits of his labor. Now, when we're living out of this new self that Christ has given us, we work hard, not just so that we can enjoy our fruit, we work hard so that we can bless others. We want others to flourish. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk. This this word corrupting is rotten. It literally means rancid. Talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it, look, may give grace to those who hear. Now why do, again, why do we, have corrupting talk come out of our mouth? Why do we talk bad about those we dislike? Because our identities are so fragile that we're competing with others for recognition and therefore I must tear them down. My words have a corrosive effect on the reputation of others and I have to do this to make myself feel better about who I am. That's living out of the old self and we need to remind each other that's your old self, your new self, your beloved. You don't have to earn a reputation. You receive it through Christ. You are God's child and you became his child out of sheer grace. That I am new because of Jesus doing for me what I could never do for myself. Therefore, my identity isn't up for grabs. I don't have to earn it or achieve it. I've already won. And now others can win too without affecting me in a negative way. I speak truthfully and constructively, giving grace to my Christian brothers and sisters, helping them to see God's grace at work in their new life. Let's go to verse 31. The church is meant to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now this is Paul's, Paul loves to do junk drawer sentences. It's just like, da, 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 da. You pull the junk drawer out, right? A little bit of everything's in there. This is a little bit of everything. This is everything that destroys community. And Paul's saying, we put that away when we put the old self away. We grow up into the new self. Now listen, what what this is showing us, this is the definition of a dog-eat-dog world. You better get what you can get. You better scratch and claw and make it happen. It doesn't care. Don't care about anybody else. What matters is you in yours. And you see the words bitterness in there. What happens when somebody hurts you? Cut them off. Push away from them. 
get bitter in your heart towards them. You slander them. I would argue that nearly every other community on the planet is motivated by these behaviors. You're going to find these behaviors in it, and unforgiveness is going to be ruling the community. And the community starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller as they isolate themselves and cut off those they don't like. We're not like those people. They get smaller and smaller and smaller because they're so unforgiving. They have to cut people off, push people away. This happens personally too. You don't have any close friends. It's a sad life to not have any close friends. Listen, in a, in a kind pastoral way, I'm gonna try to say this. If you're living your life and you don't have close friends who can say things to you and help you grow into this new person, you're living your life wrong. It's not about money. It's not about education. It's not about what house you live and what car you drive. That's foolish. You're not gonna care on your deathbed. Life is about receiving this identity from God, knowing God, and then living it out in a community of people that help me become my new self. Look at verse 32. Here's the Christian. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. If there's anything that our culture is not, it's tender-hearted. Don't trust anyone. Keep barriers around your heart and around your life. It's safer at home. It's safer on Facebook. Nobody can really know you on Facebook. On Instagram, you get to present your curated self. Everything looks great. Nobody can really hurt you there. And our hearts get hard. Paul says, no, Christian, your new self is meant to be tender-hearted. Keep reading. Forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. So I want you to see this new community. It isn't, if we could just pull back now as I'm closing, couldn't we say, isn't this the type of community that we want to be a part of? It's honest. They speak the truth to one another. They, they get angry at injustice and they go to work on trying to make it right. They try to make our world a better place. They're hardworking and they're not selfish with, their with their, the fruit of their labor. They're generous by giving to others. They give grace to each other in their communication and they can say, you know what? You're not living out of your new self. You're, why are you living out of your old self? Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember your identity in Christ. Live into that. Grow up into that. And they're kind and tender-hearted and self-sacrificial and loving. Isn't that the community that you're looking for? I think this is the type of community everyone wants and everyone wants to build. I think Facebook wants to build this community. They can't. This type of community cannot be built or sought head-on. No one can build this type of community. If you try, you will only destroy it. You will idolize some virtue and you will isolate those who disagree with you and then therefore you will destroy real community. You'll destroy real diversity. 
your community will become an echo chamber. Everyone with your income, everyone with your outlook, everyone with your news source. It's not real community. Listen, Paul shows us here the key to belonging to and building this type of community in this one verse. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Look right here. As God in Christ forgave you. That's the gospel. That's the core message of Christianity, the essence of Christianity in a nutshell. He goes on in 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And look, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, this type of community only happens where grace is the centerpiece. The gospel has to be the controlling factor in everything they do. The only way for a community to function like this is if they are all radically aware of what God has done for them personally. They know how much they have been forgiven. And so they freely extend that type of forgiveness to others. Hear me. If you're holding someone in unforgiveness, you're not thinking about what Christ has done for you. If you're holding someone in unforgiveness, you've stepped away from the gospel. You're living out of your old self. You're on a path where your heart is going to get harder and colder and you're gonna become more and more isolated. The church is meant to be the community that is controlled by the idea and the thought and the imagination of what Christ has done for us personally. That though I was a sinner, Christ died for me while I was a yet sinner. And Christ can give me this new life by grace. And that means I didn't earn it. What does that mean? I'm no better than anybody in this room. I can never look down on anyone because I received my new identity by grace. Listen, this new identity we receive from Christ this new imagination we get from being around Jesus and this new community to practice this new way of life. It's all a result of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in the tomb. Christianity is not about being nice. It's about being new. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, if you put your faith in him, can be yours. And this power causes us to mature as we live in community with one another and as we give grace and grace and grace to one another. So this morning, my call isn't just to believe the gospel so that you can go to heaven when you die. My call is believe the gospel and come find out who you really are. Live in community and on mission. Everybody talks about serving the poor. We do it. 100% of our members on a weekly or a monthly basis, we're serving the poor in our city. We're blessing some area in our city. Everybody thinks about making disciples is nice. We're doing it as we're living in community and on mission to one another. Come join us. Make this city a better place to live.
Come join us. Same time next week. <laughs> Father, I confess that I too often live out of my old self. And I'm thankful for my missional community and my elders that can be around me and can remind me who I am in Christ, that my identity is not up for grabs. My identity is secure in you. And there are many people in this room who they're on the search for an identity, whether it's out there or in their heart. And that's a long and lonely road full of disappointment and frustration. I pray this morning that they would turn from that identity project and they would turn to the Son of God who lived the life that they couldn't live and died the death that they deserved so that they could have a new self, one made in the image and likeness of God. That we can be your dear children, dear children through Christ. Father, those who have maybe believed that at one time in their life, but they've been hurt and they're swimming around in unforgiveness and bitterness, would they repent of their sin and believe the gospel again and step into a community of people that can love them and lead them to find their new self in Christ. And for the one who claims Christ on their lips, but their life looks nothing like him, I pray that you would bring conviction and that you would remind them of how Christ gave himself up wholly for them. And you would capture their imagination and they would begin to live out of this new life that's found in Christ, this new self. Father, we come this morning to your table where Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you to cover your sins. Colossians tells us our true self, our true life is found in Christ, in God. That you lost your life so that we could find ours. And as we come and receive your body and your blood this morning, would you work this into our heart by faith? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.